And in the passage we're about to read, um, God is setting up a courtroom. And he says that he has an indictment against his people. That Particularly earlier in the book, he's been talking about how they have been neglecting the poor and the needy and not dealing uh, with oppression, as well as idolatry and all the typical things. So here we are, Micah chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. You guys remember that, right? That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And then Micah, speaking as one of the people, responds to this indictment from the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, Let me pray, and can somebody turn the volume down just a smidge? A little loud. Lord God, thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that we would heed it, um, that you would work in us in such a way that we'd be transformed into the kind of person that that last verse describes. And we need your help for that. So we ask for your help in your name. Amen. When I was a senior in high school, I uh, went water skiing for the first time with my good friends, Tommy and David. And Tommy and David were lake guys, like... They had families with houses near the lake, and they both owned boats. And there was a couple other guys that I didn't know. They were their friends. It was my first time out. And so I was going to go skiing, and I was like, I got this. You know, like, I play basketball, I run track. I'm a pretty, pretty athletic dude, uh, pretty, pretty studly 17-year-old. And, um, you know, they ski. I'm watching them. They're, giving, they're coaching me. They're telling me what they do. It looks so easy. I mean, they're just gliding, and they're jumping and doing tricks. And, and laughing and having a great time. And then I get in the water, of course. And, you know, they crank up the boat. And I try to hold on to the rope. And then it's, like, ripped out of my hands. And then they circle around while I, like, tread water waiting for them. And uh, get the skis, like, back on. Do it again. 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 And I would struggle and flail and try. But basically, I just got a nose full of lake for about half an hour. And then it got to the point... Beyond, like, funny for them to the point where they were feeling... There's a German word for this. I don't know it. But it's when you feel shame for another person, like, on their behalf. (laughs) And um, that's what was happening. It was sort of like, okay, just get in the boat. We don't want to make eye contact with you right now. Um, And it it was just awful. And I think that sometimes trying to obey God can feel a lot like it felt for me that day on the water. Like there are these commandments in this passage here. There's different places in the Bible. I mean, the Bible is full of commandments, but there's different locations. The Ten Commandments is one place 
when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart. There are these places where the Bible just sort of distills down what it is that God wants for us. And this is one of those. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love kindness, or sometimes translated love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. And it just feels like I'm just getting a nose full of water behind the boat. I don't know what to do. But I want to look at these three commandments that are given here one by one and kind of unpack them a bit. So the first one, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice. To do justice. What does do justice mean? Um, Your parents' generation, if they went to church, they would have thought of doing justice as just the concept of being fair. Like in a judgment situation, will the punishment fit the crime and do it rightly? Um, But the biblical sense is broader than that. And your generation is kind of getting onto that. You understand this. But broadly, it just means living righteously. The word justly has the same root word as the word righteous in the Bible. And he has just said, you will see the righteousness of the Lord. He's saying, do righteousness. Be righteous, obedient, live faithfully. But more specifically, as he's been talking about neglect of the poor and other acts of rebellion, it it means in a more focused way than just generally being a good person. It means treating people according to what they deserve in a positive sense. So it has a sense of fairness, but it's like treating them according to that. And again, they've been neglecting and oppressing the poor. Uh, The idea of social justice fits in this category. It's a big a big element, what we now commonly call social justice, making sure people are treated fairly and well. John Perkins, who's a civil rights leader, he was um, persecuted in Mississippi, moved out west, was converted to Christianity, and then moved back into Mississippi in the midst of all the chaos of the 1950s and 60s. But he's a Christian civil, civil rights leader and thinker, and he says this, If you would ask me, where do we start with justice? It is believing that this creative God desires that we would bear his image in the world. When we talk about charity, we, have, we often say that we give people dignity. We give people dignity. But then he says this. You don't give people dignity. You affirm it. That's the idea of justice. Biblical justice comes from being in God's image, in his likeness, and like of of yourself, and so acting like a creature that's created in his image, but also recognizing it in the people around you and treating them accordingly. To treating them as people who are worthy and deserving of dignity. I'll ask you, if you are not a believer here tonight, you're here because you're exploring Christianity or you're skeptical of it, just by virtue of being a William and Mary student, I bet that you care very deeply about social justice and human issues. Um, but I would simply ask you, why do you want justice for people? Where does that come from for you? And I would ask you to entertain the idea that the reason that you want that so deeply is because God made you for it. That you are a reflection of the character of God and that you actually intuitively, even if you deny God's existence, you recognize that value in other people and you want to see them get it. I just want that to be something that you will entertain if that's where you're coming from. But I, I see in our culture now this amazing trend of people seeking this in ways that they never did before. 
Like when I was in college, the notion of caring about global poverty or clean water or human trafficking was kind of like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Like I had a couple like crunchy friends, if people still say that, people who are like kind of granola, crunchy, kind of hippies or whatever. They felt that way, but the average person wasn't like walking around talking and thinking about that, but it's become much more prevalent. And that, I think that's wonderful. Um, an organization, have you ever heard of something called International Justice Mission? The leader of International Justice Mission has an amazing TED Talk that he did a few months ago that's unbelievable. If you just, you know, TED Talks, you know, these. If you just search like Internet IJM TED Talk, it'll blow your mind. It's great. Won't go into it tonight. But um, a friend of mine, his name was Keith Coward. He was actually the pastor that I worked under when I was right out of, out of college doing youth ministry. A few years back, he went to a prayer conference. But these guys from IJM reported an international justice mission. It involves this whole swath of activities around the world. Often lawyers going and, and pleading the case of people who otherwise can't get justice, can't get help. But some of these guys that worked for IJM were, do you guys watch 24? Is it too, are you too young for that? You know the show 24? You know who Jack Bauer is? Is that a name that means something to you? Um, or uh, Rick Grimes from... Uh, uh, Walking Dead, you know, this, this lawman, this officer who just goes in and takes over. And there were these guys who were basically like Christian Jack Bowers, who in some cases would like get parachuted in like retired military guys who would literally kick down the doors of brothels, rescue the sex slaves who were forced into prostitution and like put them on a helicopter and take them to, to freedom. Like, don't you want to be one of those guys? Like, I, I want to know that guy. And Keith said that it, after these guys shared some of their stories, the crowd, this large conference he was at, just erupted in applause, just overwhelming. And he just talked about how he was just hit in a new way of, like, the need for justice and the need for Christians to be participating in that. Um, he's in God's image, and he doesn't want to see image bearers treated like something less than human. That's justice. Um, actually, a representative from IJM, one of our alum, I'll be announcing it later, uh, but her name's Jessica Kyle. Uh, she graduated from here several years ago. She's going to be here for homecoming on Saturday. We'd like to meet with anyone who would like to talk about this and the Capital Fellows Program. She's connected with that in Northern Virginia. Junior, senior, don't know what you're going to do after you graduate. I'm going to talk to someone, but I'll tell you more about that later. Um, but what's interesting, though, in Micah's context, when he's saying seek justice, do justly, <coughs> He's talking about people you can actually see. Like it would be like the immediate kind of like people didn't know what was going on all over the world, but they did know what was happening in front of us about caring for their local community in meaningful ways. But in our day, because of the Internet, and I think this is partly why we're more justice conscious than we used to be, because we hear the stories. We can click on it and read about it. Right. Um, Internet and social media have just blown the doors off of it. Such that it can become utterly overwhelming. The global issues are so huge and devastating and horrific that it's just like, where do I even begin? Where do I start? Exploring things like IJM is one of those, International Justice Mission. John Rose is going to give an example of a local ministry afterwards uh, in the announcements of, of an opportunity for you, for you to do that. This winter, the church uh, I'm affiliated with, Grace Covenant, in the last several years we've been partnering with other churches in town to house uh, the homeless of Williamsburg during the coldest months of the year. And uh, we did that for a week. And by the way, just so you all know, like that church, uh, Grace Covenant, they were so appreciative of RUF students coming and being like, it wouldn't have happened without you guys. 
And they like, I got this giant bear hug on Sunday morning from one of the guys leading into just being like, your students like made this happen. So if you're interested in doing that, it's very safe, but also very needed. There's a, just a few little examples of ways to begin to get involved, but it all starts, John Perkins is right. It starts with believing in this creative God that wants me to be like him and wants to treat others as if they are like him. It begins with viewing others as not others, but us. They're not them, they're us. They're just like you and me, recognizing their dignity and their worth and treating them accordingly. Those are like deep issues, but it can also just be something as simple as not gossiping about your roommate and trash-talking him or her to your friends when they're not around. You hear how that destroys their dignity? Not trashing your professor. Uh, It's amazing to me to see the way that people talk and write about the faculty online. It's amazing. Just destroying them uh, as a person. Um, But the idea of justice in the Bible is setting things right. Beginning to make the world a little bit more the way it's supposed to be, both institutionally and individually. But it goes further. It says, do justice. In verse 8, he also says, love kindness. Love kindness. Um, That word kindness is the word in Hebrew, hesed, which is steadfast love. It's one of the most common words used in the Old Testament to describe the character of God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Um, It's sometimes translated mercy in this context. But this takes it a step further. Like justice is the idea of treating someone according to their intrinsic human dignity. But steadfast love is even more than that. It's not just giving people what they deserve. It's giving them more than they deserve. Because sometimes we need grace in relationships. Sometimes somebody's actually done something wrong and forgiveness is required. Um, Doing justice is really hard work. Steadfast love is even harder. Um, nearly impossible. Um, with the explosion of information through the internet and social media, um, it's made it even more apparent and has given birth with this concern for social justice that we even have the word, right? Social justice. Do you know it? Warriors. Social justice warrior. Some of that's become a term so much so that it's, I mean, it's on Urban Dictionary. <laughs> Urban Dictionary defines a social justice warrior as... It says that this is a pejorative term for an individual who repeatedly and vehemently engages in arguments on social justice on the Internet, often in a shallow or not well thought out way, for the purpose of raising their own personal reputation. A social justice warrior, or SJW, does not necessarily strongly believe all that they say or even care about the groups that they are fighting on the behalf of. They typically repeat points from whoever is the most popular blogger or commentator at the moment, hoping that they will get SJ points and become popular in return. They are very sure to adopt stances that are correct in their social circles. The SJW's favorite activity of all is to dogpile. Their favorite websites to frequent are LiveJournal and Tumblr. They do not have relevant favorite they do not have relevant favorite real world places because SJWs are primarily civil rights activists only online. Okay? Sound familiar? Who is this person? I've never heard of that. I've never I don't know anyone like that. Um, 
Of course, you see this all the time. What's the hot issue of the moment? And everyone suddenly jumps on and dogpiles and throws shame left and right. So much so uh, that Slate Magazine called 2014, they did this huge article at the end of the year, and Slate Magazine called 2014 the year of outrage. And there's this awesome interactive thing on their website where you can click on any day of 2014 and they will tell you what we were outraged about on that day. <laughs> and there's this whole like interactive uh, graphic. Some of the examples, um, when we found that, when it was announced that Hello Kitty is not a real cat, um, there was outrage when Hillary Clinton uh, had said in a speech that she and Bill were dead broke when they left the White House. Uh, people were outraged. Um, and then there's real things like Ferguson and other like actual uh, injustices and things that people were upset about. But here's what Slate Magazine says about our outrage, our collective outrage. Over the past decade or so, outrage has become the default mode for politicians, pundits, critics, and with the rise of social media, the rest of us. The rest of us. When something outrageous happens, when a posh London block installs anti-homeless spikes, remember that picture? The spikes where the homeless people would sleep on the underpass, and we were outraged. And when Khloe Kardashian wears a Native American headdress, or for that matter, when we read the horrifying details in the Senate's torture report, it's easy to anticipate the cycle that follows. Anger, sarcasm, recrimination, piling on, defenses and counterattacks. Anger at the anger. Outrage over the outrage. Disdain for the outraged. Sometimes an apology... And then on to the next. Twitter and Facebook make it easier than ever to participate from home. And the cycle, the cycle occurs regardless of the gravity of the offense, which can make each outrage feel forgettable, replaceable. The bottomlessness of our rage has a numbing effect. Think about how often we're just, the vitriol flows uh, from our fingertips. Um, the social justice warrior, rather than being the, the weird, crunchy kid in college of 15 years ago, is now just sort of an angry person at a keyboard. Um, it's, it happens on our campus. I'll step into a hot mess real quick. Just a couple of weeks ago, do you remember the humans of William & Mary story? That we were all sharing, and everybody was so mad. One of my Facebook friends wrote, humans of the... The members of Humans of William & Mary should be ashamed to show their faces on this campus because they didn't publish a story that they thought, trying to be fair here, maybe this isn't the best timing for this kind of very personal account of deeply struggling with mental health issues in the climate of our campus given the events that happened last spring. Maybe this isn't the best time to put that in our publication. But the, we clicked. And if you shared that article, I'm not like dogging on you. I almost shared it myself and then read it, thoughtfully <laughs> paused, <laughs> and thought, mm, there's probably another side to this story, right? Um, they should be ashamed to show their faces, the vitriol, the anger. Um, when justice is not a response to grace, it will always become self-righteousness. Justice without grace, will always be self-righteous. The Bible goes beyond just screaming through our fingertips online in seeking justice, but we are called to love. And it doesn't just say that word kindness means steadfast love, but it says to love kindness. We're supposed to love steadfast love. 
And that requires a better and bigger transformation than just making sure things are done right and that the people who've done wrong are held to accounts online to be kind. And then the last thing he says, to walk humbly. To walk humbly. If, if justice is hard and love is harder, humility might be the hardest of all. Uh, the opposite of humility is, of course, pride. And you hear that in the self-righteousness, right? C.S. Lewis says this about pride. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Because pride says, I'm better than you. Pride doesn't recognize your dignity and your value. It says, I am more important than you. And so I can trample on your property, your feelings, whatever. But part of what makes humility so hard is once you think you have it, you don't, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis also writes this in his Screwtape Letters, which you've never read it. It's wonderful. Screwtape Letters is fiction, but it's written from the perspective of one devil giving advice to his apprentice devil nephew, teaching him how to be a good demon to tempt this new Christian convert that he has under his watch. And he, he refers to the Christian as your patient. He says this, your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to that fact? All virtues are less formidable to, to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. I think I'm a pretty humble guy. Right? It just slips right. It's, it's gone. It's like smoke. As soon as you think you have it, you don't. Um, you are a very socially conscious generation. Arguably the most in at least American history. But ironically, people who describe your generation and mine also would describe you as the most self-absorbed and entitled. And those two things sit next to each other in this really ironic way. It's this strange contradiction of our generation. And this is why we see so much social justice posturing, pretending to care about things that maybe we don't. By the way, the stuff about your generation that's written, people can write these things because we have social media where everyone is permanently recording their thoughts and opinions. <laughs> like, I don't think you're that different than my generation and your parents' generation. Ours were just, our thoughts and opinions just weren't recorded permanently in a searchable <laughs> fashion where you can do a search on the word outrage and show uh, what everyone was mad about for a year. Um, Cutting you a little slack there. Um, again, a quick example from uh, mainstream pop culture. Did you guys see the Yukon kid, the mac and cheese boy? You can see this video? So essentially there's a video online right now. It happened last week. This student at Yukon, I think he's a sophomore, and he showed up without his card to swipe in at the cafeteria, and he wanted his mac and cheese, jalapeno mac and cheese uh, to be specific, and they would not let him in because he was clearly intoxicated and he didn't have his card. 
And he proceeded to berate the entire staff, yell at people, began pushing the director. Uh, Somebody, of course, pulled out their phone and recorded it. You know, again, privilege of social media, right? We got to see it. Um, And he was eventually arrested. It's an amazing video. Um, Incidentally, he released an apology video. It's a pretty good apology. Like, it's a pretty, he seems to, like, really be owning it. Um, But, gosh, I can't believe you guys hadn't seen this. So much hipper than you guys. Um, so much more with it. I spend way more time at my computer than you, is all that means. Um, but in his. If you know you're cool, you're not cool. You gotta try to not be. Um, but in his apology, he says, he, he's looking at it, he says, when he watched the video, he's saying, I couldn't believe that was me. Like some of it's very good and sincere. He apologized specifically to the workers. But then he's saying, what is wrong with me? That's not what I'm all about. I don't treat people like that. And yet he's watching a video that's showing him treat people like that. And as I was watching the video, the first like seven minutes of it, I'm judging him like big time. Like, wow, this kid's messed up. I hope that guy punches him in the face. And then I had like flashbacks to moments of like ranting at people or my hissy fit over not getting my mac and cheese, you know, whatever it may be. And I was like, oh, man, I'm glad somebody didn't pull out a phone. I remember this moment. I've shared it with you guys before, but it's when I was a sophomore in college, and I was doing a semester abroad at Oxford, and I was sitting down with some friends, and I was being really cool, uh, and I knew it. And I, was, I, was, I discovered cider because I didn't like beer, but I wanted to look cool. So I was drinking the hard cider, which was legal there at, at 19. And um, my cool friend who smoked was like letting me, let me smoke a cigarette. I didn't really smoke, but I was like, yeah, so cool. And I met this like British dude and his French girlfriend. And they asked us what we thought about Bill Clinton, who was president at the time and was in the middle of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And he had publicly lied about it. And I went on this rant about... Oh, yeah, Bill Clinton, he lied under oath. And that was ridiculous what he did. I mean, I can't believe, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, I slowed down. And in the middle of ranting in justice and righteousness, I vomited all over the table (laughs) right in front of me. And, like, I looked up in shock, like, looked at my friends, looked at my new friends who did not want to be my friends. Everybody was really nice to me. They were really gracious and cool about it. But I just thought... I mean, I can tell that story, but really glad that, like, my friend Alec didn't, like, pull out the camera and be like, let's watch Ben's rant. And then, like, I would have become, like, I would have been a meme. You know, it would have been amazing. Um, I had a sense of justice, sort of. Was I loving? No. Was I home? Like, hardly. No. And then I was humiliated uh, and quickly was like, eh, maybe I don't quite have it all together. So here's the thing. Um, well, are you guys familiar with the terracotta soldiers in China? So in the 1970s, this, this burial ground of the first emperor of China is discovered, and they begin to excavate and discover the terracotta soldiers. Very famous, amazing. These huge, this huge burial ground. 8,000 clay soldiers protecting the tomb. 130 chariots, 520 horses, and 150 cavalry horses. I don't know what makes the horses different. <laughs> They're all made of clay. But, um, but this, this massive army. I'll say this. I, your generation is amazing. The fact that you care so deeply, even if it kind of 
you get distracted by like the new Star Wars trailer or the new Taylor Swift album quickly from the thing that you care about. You care and are concerned more deeply with these issues than any other generation. But my fear for you is that that your generation will become hollow soldiers. That you will be made of empty clay. Hollow and fragile. They say that when you, with these, they have to keep the, the settings just right. If they're taken out into the arid climate and into the sun, within four minutes, the soldiers begin to flake. You know how sensitive everyone is, how quickly we are to be offended, and the outrage is coming from that? That is our generation. And God has called us to more. Not, not less. Not to not care about these things, but more. A loving, humble, gracious justice that goes deeper, that is born from and raised in God's grace. How can we become full living soldiers? The text has already told us. If you back up to verse 4, God is leading in. He's bringing an indictment to them. But he says, verse 4, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam, the leaders of God's people. And then he says in verse 5, oh, my people. Like they're in the middle of rebellion and he's saying, I still call you my people. And then he says this word, remember. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and Balaam, son of Beor. This was a situation where these people wanted to curse God's people, and God miraculously intervened so that a blessing came on them. And then it says, and remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What you need to know about that is this. The location of Shittim was a place where God's people broke the covenant with him. It says that they began whoring with the daughters of Moab. And Shittim. If, just so you know, won't explain the details of that, but whoring with the daughters of Moab was frowned upon. <laughs> Not a good thing. But at Gilgal was where God renewed his covenant upon taking them into the promised land. Where he reclaimed them as his people. And he's saying, I've been gracious to you before. I saved you from slavery. And even when you were faithless to me, I was gracious to you and I restored you. And I call you mine. You're mine. And Micah's response is, I couldn't kill enough cows in sacrifice for this. And then, again, prophetically, I could give you my firstborn son. But that wouldn't be enough. But God gave us his. God gave his firstborn son. Christ, firstborn son, firstborn son, who I'm sure is fun. But Christ has been just. He has treated us according to the dignity of his image, bringing reconciliation. And he has shown love in redeeming us. And he walked in true humility by becoming a man in the first place. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He showed us humility. So back to water skiing on Lake Tuscaloosa. I wish I could say that I like took a breather and they coached me up and an hour later I got in the water and did it. I tried again and I again just swallowed the lake. But what I'm told that I did wrong 
was that the whole time I was fighting to stand up and ski on my own strength rather than just grabbing the rope and letting the boat do the work. Christ is the boat. We do justly and love mercy and walk humbly when we hold on to his power and then as we are connected to that, we begin to move across the water. And some people make it look easy. Others of us are never quite so graceful. But it's all his power. And the moment that we think that I can ski without the boat, we're done. We're flailing around. But as long as we hold on to him, we can ride in his wake. And begin to become the kind of people that Micah calls us to be. And begin to treat other people and institutions the way God has treated us. Let's pray.